Barfield's thinking about thinking, that is, thinking deeply and seriously about what goes on in the mind when we do what we call thinking, led him to the recognition that mental awareness, consciousness, had developed over time. Human consciousness had, in fact, evolved. What I was anxious to point out, what I thought was brought out by these uh, etymological observations, was that <coughs> there wasn't just people in the past who, who think like us but have different ideas, but who didn't think like us together at all. That they had different kind of thinking. <coughs> That, that, that impressed itself on me fairly early, that, which, which of course is another way of formulating the, the concept of evolution of consciousness. That was the voice of Owen Barfield, who was a philosopher, an author, and above all a scholar of what he called the evolution of consciousness, the idea that humanity's modes of perception, of thinking, and of relating to nature have fundamentally changed, evolved, during the course of recorded history. And he wrote about exactly how these things had changed, broadly from a sense of connection with nature and reality to an increasing sense of interiority, inner life in humans, but which came with a sense of being cut off from nature. That's what episode two of The Holdall is about, introducing Owen Barfield. I talked to Mark Vernon, who has written a book called A Secret History of Christianity, which introduces Barfield's ideas through the light that they shed on Christian history, including the prehistory, the ancient Israelites and Greek philosophers, up to the scientific revolution and the Protestant Reformation, and right up to the present day. We also talked about Barfield's high view of the imagination, which he thought could lead us to the truth, and about how words, through their histories, have soul and also about what Barfield wrote about rainbows. Mark's book is a very clear and very readable introduction, and it's being published in late August. It's for sale online, obviously, but it's being published by John Hunt Publishing, and I will bet that copies make their way into good bookshops everywhere. I actually myself prepared over 50 articles by Barfield for online publication, which you can see at the official website of the Owen Barfield Literary Estate, which is at owenbarfield.org. And I wrote short introductions to them, and I've read practically all of Barfield. So I know his stuff, but he can be difficult to talk about, simply, as we do here. So it was great to be able to talk with Mark about a great thinker, someone we should heed, and someone who is really writing for now, for the 21st century. As ever, there are useful show notes, including links to Barfield's writing and to Mark Vernon's website and his book page at my site, roryoconnor.xyz. And please do consider making a monthly subscription to me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Rory O'Connor. In addition to sustaining my writing and podcasting, and me, there are some bonuses for people who do that. And as Shakespeare would have said, this is richer and stranger stuff than what you would normally find in some rag. Thanks indeed to my patrons. And like and subscribe, everyone. Here's the interview. So, hey Mark. Hi there, Rory. Hey. We're here today to talk about Owen Barfield, who is a scholar of the evolution of consciousness. Just in the in a almost social and kind of biographical sense, could you tell us who he was? Yeah, he he was born um, in 1898 um, and died in 1997. So lived for an extraordinary stretch of time. Queen Victoria on the throne when he was born, and then Tony Blair became prime minister in Great Britain 
just after he died, just before he died. Um, and maybe that in itself maybe made him very alert to this sense of how things can change, and not just historically, um, but as you say, that our perception of what it is to be human, um, our consciousness itself evolves so that um, even across the course of, say, his lifetime, he must have been aware of how people experience life very differently um, at the end of the Victorian age, um, as opposed to, well, you know, um, within post-modernity, as it's now called. Um, and um, I think that um, he also found this, though, because he was a philologist. Um, he um, was friends with C.S. Lewis, particularly um, at the beginning um, of his uh, undergraduate life, and then uh, soon after that got uh, friendly with Tolkien, um, and so became part of this Inklings group. And they were very fascinated by language and words, and particularly how language and words um, communicate not just as signs, as it were, grunts and pointers, indicators, um, but themselves have a kind of life um, that communicates something of um, the interior life of other human beings and indeed of nature, cosmos and gods as well. Um, so he, he got in with this crowd and developed his own theory um, about the evolution of consciousness as a result, um, which is this kind of big sweep, um, particularly over the last 3,000 years or so. That was kind of the, the focus of his attention, which I guess is broadly um, the time that uh, works of literature exist um, that have survived um, because they were, had been written down subsequently. Um, so that, that, maybe that's something about his kind of background and, and his interest. Yeah, and I think I would also add just to that, that he would have seen himself in his work as providing a kind of opening or um, way into the Austrian spiritual scientist, uh, Rudolf Steiner, who the word spiritual scientist kind of claiming to have a kind of modern way through kind of consciousness that you were talking about, the postmodern and modern consciousness into the spiritual world. That's the kind of tricky bit that people can either throw their hands up at first face value and then maybe decide to engage with. But uh, even in its own terms, that 3,000 year uh, span sweep is also something that people can say, well, what do I know about that? But I think maybe one way to think about the evolution of consciousness is when he talks about what he calls felt changes of consciousness. He was there interested, very interested in poetry. And for example, he talks about the difference in people's feeling in the difference between hearing the phrase old prophets and prophets old. Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, words and poetry were were a kind of clairvoyance to him um, by which I mean that if you just stay with the experience of reading poetry um, it feels like something new has been opened up to you so if you resist as it were trying to ask the question what does the poetry mean and just stay with say a phrase like prophets old which has this kind of evocative quality as opposed to old prophets which sounds more descriptive descriptive more like a kind of prose phrase um, that prophet's old feels like it's opening you up um, into the world 
of the profits, um, which in some ways is different from our own. Um, so that's a very small example. Um, but poetry in general, particularly the romantic poetry of William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge, um, he felt that um, that's what they were trying to achieve, um, was evoke something which was implicit as well as something that was explicit. Um, they weren't just trying to describe nature. They were trying to recover um, the inner life of nature and the world itself. Um, and the link there with Rudolf Steiner that you mentioned is that Steiner, um, for Barfield, was doing something similar, but in a way um, even more so. Um, I mean, so much so that, as perhaps you're alluding to there, Steiner himself can be a very kind of confusing writer to read. It's often, for me, it's just not clear quite what he's uh, trying to express at all. Um, but Barfield certainly um, felt that Steiner was onto the same sort of thing um, and um, had um, uh, sort of confirmed to Barfield what Barfield had begun to detect himself um, through his study of the way the words change their meaning, the way that they can be put together and what they elicit um, in our imagination um, rather than in just, say, our, our rational comprehension of things. Yeah, so if we sweep out from that example for of Prophets Old and you talk about, as you were saying, the kind of broad evolution of consciousness, the way the words have changed in meaning. Uh, another example that you give early on in your book is uh, also provided by Barfield is the history of the word uh, spirit and its origins in the Greek breath, pneuma. And how that's changed. Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, it's a really fascinating example for him because um, the word pneuma um, appears in many sacred scriptures, but in particular it appears in the Christian New Testament. Um, and the text like John 3.8, a very famous text um, which talks about the wind blowing where it wills. Um, for Barfield, he notices that that word wind um, is actually the Greek pneuma. And for the writer of John's Gospel, it must have meant both wind and breath, in fact, as well as spirit, um, three things that we now separate out. Um, and so when the text originally says the pneuma blows where it wills, um, this becomes almost impossible to translate now in our consciousness, because we're not sure whether to say is that the wind blow it where it wills, or where the spirit blows where it wills, or where the breath blows where it wills. Um, and so what it tends to be treated as now is a kind of metaphor um, that the divine spirit is a bit like the wind in that it blows where it wills. Um, but that's a separation um, between wind and spirit, between the physical world and the spiritual world, or between um, the material world and the immaterial world. Um, whereas originally um, those things weren't divided up, um, that as it were, um, people at the time of Jesus um, and before then must have had some experience, um, a sort of porous sense of things. Um, where the material and the immaterial weren't distinctive experiences, um, but um, they linked to one another, where our relationship with um, gods and, um, and immortal entities, spirits and so on, was quite as everyday as our relationship to trees and sunshine and the wind is now. Um, so he, 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 he feels this is such a fascinating word because it, it, it quite clearly demonstrates how consciousness, how the experience of what it is to be alive in the world, must have changed very dramatically um, in the 2,000 years since, for example, John wrote that, 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 that um, line, the pneuma blows where it wills, um, that's become 
untranslatable in a way now. Yeah, and one of the main points that Barfield makes is that we almost can't see that natural connection, that almost loosely expressed automatic connection or kind of natural to the people who were using that word, pneuma, in both those senses and all those senses because of our current perspective. Uh, Barfield locates um, this kind of difficulty in seeing the naturalness of that connection, especially in the 19th century. And basically, even today, we see them as creating a metaphor. We think, oh, what's the spirit like? They were thinking, what's the spirit like? Oh, it's a bit like the breath. It's like something coming in and kind of vitalizing you. But it was much more natural for them. So, I mean, like, it's like um, those Christmas jokes about Mary, I, I, uh, that they're kind of deceiving themselves and us um, by coming up with a wild story. But it was actually all much more together for them. Yeah, I mean, Barfield talks about how your sense of yourself as a person in this older um, um, sense of consciousness this the, in, in the ancient world um, would have been experienced much more as coming from the outside in rather than the inside out, which is a much more natural, immediate um, experience of what it is to be human for us today. We assume we have an inner life that's kind of working away um, and that it reaches out and tries to connect to others, to the world around us, maybe through understanding, maybe through affection, uh, maybe through the imagination. But the direction of travel is very much from the inside out, whereas he argues and uses evidence, builds the case um, that in the old in the ancient world, it was experienced from the outside in. So, for example, myths um, weren't stories to try to explain things, um, which uh, requires a modern mentality, the idea that we're sort of alienated from the world and need to try to understand it. Um, for Barfield, he makes the point that ancient myths um, actually was spoken to human beings from, say, nature, from, say, astral bodies, from, say, um, gods, um, and that the human task was to capture them and express them and retell them. Um, it was much more a consciousness that, as it were, tried to listen and hear, um, which itself is a sense that requires something from the outside entering in, uh, rather than our consciousness today, which is maybe one much more like kind of sight, um, which is, as it were, is like looking out from a black box to try and grab bits of the world, um, much like a camera operates. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, again, it, it stresses this very dramatic shift of consciousness. Um, and in terms of the Christian dispensation, he, he notices that Jesus often makes comments about what matters now is not what comes from the outside in, but what comes from the inside out. Um, and, you know, at one level, this can be read as kind of trying to reform um, the old law about uh, eating food, but of course it has a spiritual meaning, which is much more, much deeper, um, which is to say the struggle now is to develop a consciousness that moves from the inside out rather than um, the old way, um, which moves from the outside in. Yeah, and another kind of example of that would be like um, lightning. Our, the way we see, say, ancient, even current uh, tribes to the extent that they exist, they would they would say, oh, the gods are angry. And our explanation of that is there's a terrible event coming down, uh, not exactly pleasant. Uh, they're searching for an explanation of that. Um, but actually, we, see, we search for an explanation of it in kind of different uh, electricity pressures. And then we 
say that they're just coming up with another wrong explanation. But actually, they were, as Barfield would say, seeing something else in the lightning. Yeah, so it leads to um, what now would be called a much more um, animistic view of things and an animated view of things, um, where everything around you was seen to have a kind of life and vitality of its own. Um, so it's very natural to um, talk about the gods of the sky, the gods of the earth, the gods of the subterranean earth, to think of different parts of the cosmos, the sublunary parts of the cosmos, um, the planets um, take on uh, personalities and vitalities of their own, um, because this is this is directly from the way people experience things. Um, whereas what's happened now is that a new consciousness has unfolded, um, where because we don't directly experience um, the inner vitality of everything around us, um, we have to come up with these explanations to try and work out how they work. Um, and there's this odd assumption that we're the only uh, conscious entity in the cosmos. Um, I mean, perhaps people would ascribe consciousness to animals more now, and they didn't at the beginning of the modern period. Uh, figures like Descartes wouldn't have done that. Mm. We, we, we do a bit more now, so maybe things are changing again. Um, but essentially, um, it becomes possible to think of the world as a kind of machine um, that obeys laws of physics, um, which is completely unanimated, sort of dead and unthinking, mechanical. Um, and uh, Barfield's point is that this takes a whole perception of life, a whole consciousness, to even begin to think like that. Um, and something's gained. You know, the, he's always very clear about this. I think we perhaps we should say, too, that something's gained in every shift of consciousness. Um, so, for example, we have a kind of power over nature, which our ancestors didn't have, but something's lost as well. Um, and particularly for us, what we're left with is a kind of sense of alienation, not sure how to connect. Yeah. And one more point on kind of establishing this idea of, a, of, an, of, of an ancient, what Barfield calls a, uh, original consciousness, original participation in life, in, in what's around us, is when he's trying to, as you said, build the case. Um, he makes a differentiation between the evolution of consciousness, which is what is he studying, and also the history of thought, so-called, which is uh, a very common way of looking at things. And it's, you know, what Barfield is often talking about is often talked about by many other scholars, but from this kind of 19th and 20th century way of looking at things, and even 21st century way of looking at things, which, so he's talking about the same topics. It could be, you know, biblical Israel, the time of the scientific revolution and the Protestant Reformation, but he is looking at it very differently. So he says, a history of thought amounts to a kind of dialectical or syllogistic process. For example, like, you know, uh, what, so one age is kind of like looking at the mistakes of another and then, you know, saying, well, what's actually the case here? What's, what's, uh, how can we improve the way things are look, we're looking at things? Whereas he says there are, indications that there are forces at work beneath the threshold of argument, even the evolution of modern consciousness. He talks about the unconscious as being one of those. Like at the time of the kind of absolute triumph of the way, the, of a mechanistic way of looking at things, you know, steamships, trains, all the rest of it. And that could only be expected to continue. There was no, 
that these processes were kind of uh, absolutely running throughout all life, a mechanistic process that suddenly uh, Freud, maybe others as well, Jung, others, discover an unconscious, which is weird. And I'll just go on before you talk. I think that's worth you talking about since you're a psychotherapist, but he also isolates other moments where things just change suddenly in the in consciousness in a way that's not to be accounted for by you know one thing following from another correcting false uh, beliefs from the fa- from the past and so on so he talks about the jewish people in the in, in biblical history as we were rooting up all these ideas of you know everything being a representation representation of god and being showing being alive in itself rather than being created and there are other moments where he just says there's there's something going on here that's not just one thing correct in another yeah well um i mean a couple of things i mean i mean maybe one way to understand that is that much as it's very natural for us to want to interpret our inner thoughts our inner lives our our dreams um uh, even if we just interpret it and say, oh, it's just my amygdala firing, um, that's still a kind of interpretation, um, even if it's a very reductive one. Um, but whilst that's the natural way for us to do it, in previous generations, um, certainly before the modern period, it was very natural to interpret the outer world. Um, you, you know, you would uh, look at the sun rising and see an experience of God. Um, you would look at the, um, the weather changing, um, look at the seasons, look at the pattern of the stars, and interpret that um, as um, the Christian tradition was put. Um, God had written two books, the books of the Bible and the book of nature. Um, and much as you interpret the Bible, um, it was natural to interpret nature as well. And very sophisticated ways developed of doing that. Um, I think that, again, this, this notion of switch from the outer to the inner, um, I think it actually comes about often through periods of crisis and trauma. Um, so, for example, he notices that in the amongst the ancient Hebrews, um, it was the trauma of um, being a conquest. Um, first of all, when the northern kingdom falls and then the southern kingdom and Jerusalem falls, um, this kind of trauma um, led to reactions, which then it seems as a byproduct, uh, create different kinds of consciousness. Um, but nonetheless, um, then there's a kind of gain from that development as well. Um, so one that happens at that time um, in the in the history of the ancient Hebrews is um, that writing becomes much more important and this is one of the things which I, I discovered in my book actually is that um, during the period of um, the exile well before the exile and um, in the in the hundred years or so before the exile when uh, Israel was being invaded um, literacy shot up um, because kings like Hezekiah um, and Josiah encouraged the old stories to be written down um, partly to preserve them, um, that then meant that more um, people wanted to read them, more people gained the capacity to read them. Um, but that has this byproduct of internalizing the experience of, 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 of reading the myths. And um, before, you know, the myths would have been experienced orally, um, which would have been in a group with someone telling you the stories, or maybe because you went up to the temple um, and heard the stories preached there. Um, an experience where the stories came very much from the outside in. But with personal reading, um, the meaning of the stories must be found inside. Um, uh, that's what reading's like. Um, it's a kind of interior activity. 
And so this this byproduct of the crisis um, of the Babylonians invading um, actually becomes um, a shift of consciousness via the increased use of writing. And generally speaking, I think that that's a truth about what it is to be human: is that our um, our consciousness tends to shift as a result of crisis. Um, you know, it, it happens just very individually for people. As you say, I work as a psychotherapist and. People often come to psychotherapy because of some sort of crisis, maybe even a trauma. And at first they want just to be fixed um, and have things alleviated so they can go back to the way things were. But in psychotherapy, you um, try and introduce the assumption that maybe there's something to be um, learnt from the experience itself and that actually can carry you forward into a new experience of life. Um, so it's not just a question, a question of returning, um, but it's a question of changing in some way. Um, and of course, you know, that's a big thing to ask people because it's generally very unpleasant um, to think of life in that way. Um, but nonetheless, there is a big gain. And I think Barfield's sense of how things change, how things unfold, um, follows that pattern. Broadly speaking, there's a kind of alienation, there's a kind of sense of loss um, or even trauma. Um, but that after that, um, that creates a sort of space into which can flow um, a new experience of life, a new experience of spirit. Barfield talks about the imagination and we have a sense of kind of the romantic imagination, the imagination of fantasy. He loves all that. He was a friend of C.S. Lewis who had a great imagination and he read everything, all of English literature, which is, so he's obviously thoroughly immersed in imagination, but he's talking about imagination in a much more fundamental, everyday almost kind of non-fantasy sense. And again, that's actually uh, turns up in his study of philology of how words have changed their meaning. So could you talk about what he meant by imagination? Yes. Well, I mean, one way of thinking about this, which he got from Coleridge, was a distinction that Coleridge makes. Um, in um, he make, Coleridge makes this very famous remark that there's a kind of fantasy um, which is just sort of playful, but but essentially meaningless. Um, so uh, when your fantasy is at work, you might imagine a unicorn. Um, you might imagine I don't know a chicken wearing lipstick. Um, you might get into nonsense verse. Um, uh, it may just be sort of pure escapism, that kind of fantasy. And in a way, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but what you notice about it is that it doesn't last. It kind of rises and falls. Um, it has its moment and then immediately dies away. And Coleridge differentiated that from imagination, um, where imagination at first looks quite like fantasy, like something has just been, as it were, conjured up. But you then notice that it lasts, that it becomes um, quite creative and productive in its own right. And that if you stay with this kind of imagination, um, it opens up new worlds to you. Um, so you might say, you know, the architect... Um, uses their imagination in order to create a building. And then um, if it's a successful building, it's because what was in their mind, what they imagined in their mind, becomes a kind of tangible reality that enhances the lives of the people that subsequently use the building. That would be a case of imagination. Whereas an architect that was purely a fantasy architect, probably nothing would ever get built. Um, it would just be kind of drawings on the board um, and would never come about in reality. And so he argues, you know, similarly that um, when our minds are developing, um, there's lots of fantastical ideas that go through our minds, but they just rise and fall and they disappear. 
But every so often, our minds receive something that works on our imagination and that we can play with, that can, it can last. Um, and then it becomes very productive and creative. It shows us something about reality. Um, and through his um, uh, examination of words, um, Barfield argued that actually all words at some point were kind of received imaginatively. Um, we, we think of them as metaphors now, perhaps. Um, but the point about metaphors is that they're not just arbitrary, um, but they do open something up to us. Um, they're imaginative um, words um, that when we stay with them and play with them and extend them and, and use them as uh, sort of springboards or as guides on a journey, um, they, they open things up very dramatically to us. I mean, evolution, we've talked already about the evolution of consciousness. Um, evolution is uh, originally a kind of metaphor. Um, but if you stay with it as a guiding metaphor, um, it becomes possible to understand all sorts of um, parts of life and by using the notion of evolution and seeing where it takes you. So that would be an imaginative use of the word um, rather than um, a fantastical use of the word. Above all, it is Barfield's stress on the imagination that makes him the modern Coleridge. The imagination is for Barfield a mode, perhaps the mode, of apprehending reality. The imagination, I suppose I would say, is um, a form, form of perception, if you like, uh, of a way of apprehending reality. Um, which cannot be reformulated in terms of logical sequences. <coughs> From the rules of logic and reason, but it's, but it's not unreal for that reason. And another way that Barfield saw imagination coming into the everyday, as it were, is in our perception. And I'm encouraged just by the fact that I saw a rainbow yesterday evening to ask you to talk about the way that Barfield talks about how, what a rainbow is. Uh, that's very fascinating, actually. I was thinking about rainbows and wondering, I, it suddenly occurred to me you tend not to see them in the summer. <laughs> I've seen two. Um, and of course, yeah. because the sun, yeah, well, the sun, you said in the evening, of course, when yeah. the sun's low in the sky, um, I guess it was pretty late evening. And because otherwise, when the sun's high in the sky, the rainbow sort of forms, mm. as it were, below the horizon, so you'd never see it. Um, no, but, but rainbows were um, uh, a good example of how our inner world and outer world must coincide in order for us to see something clearly um, and to be able to name it, like naming a rainbow. Um, so, we, you know, if you know anything about basic physics, you know that um, the rainbow forms because the sun uh, hits raindrops in the sky at the right angle, um, the light refracts and then it hits the back of your eye um, and you see the refracted light, the spectrum of light. And so um, it requires both something objective um, in the external world, the sun, the raindrop and your eye. But of course, the rainbow's not there um, in, the, in the objective world. If you go looking for the end of the rainbow, you never find it. Um, the rainbow exists internally. Um, and when we see a rainbow, we all see a rainbow. We all share that inner experience. Um, but nonetheless, it's somewhere in between the outer and the inner. Now, you might think that a rainbow is an exceptional case, um, but Barfield argues that actually this is the same for all things that we see, um, that a tree, for example, 
um, we now know can be viewed at different kind of levels of reality. Um, the quantum physicists would see it as mostly empty space um, with electromagnetic fields and uh, tiny nuclei of atoms uh, buzzing and resonating around. Um, whereas, um, you know, maybe the, the, the biologist sees the tree as just one of a, um, a species um, and sees the species as a whole, um, sees, as it were, more um, the forest of trees rather than individual tree. Whereas, you know, you, when you're walking on a summer's day um, and sitting underneath the tree, experience its oneness and the dappled light and so on. So we, we, we do this all the time. Um, our perspective um, greatly shapes how we experience the world. Um, Barfield called these representations. You mentioned that word representations. And he argues that another way of understanding this shifts of consciousness is not just uh, my individual consciousness might change, but the consciousness of an age or a culture um, has a particular set of representations through which it views the world. So, for example, in the modern world, uh, many people in the West anyway, their representations are greatly influenced by science. And so we tend to see the world in a scientific kind of way. Whereas in the medieval world, certainly in the West, um, the representation would have been very greatly shaped by Christianity. And so people set, tended to see the world through these kind of Christian representations. Um, and it's another way of talking about um, how uh, consciousness changes um, and how the world, therefore, around us changes as well. Yeah. And uh, one of Barfield's central books, probably his central book, is called Saving the Appearances, where he talks about the rainbow in that way. And what that book does really is, maybe I'm talking a little loosely here, but it kind of introduces a very radical kind of contingency. You don't know, you're brought to realise that you, that your way of looking at things, your modern way of looking at things generally, is it's brought into question, kind of relativized. You know, if people reflect on it, we're pretty resistant, just through our experience of life, to that kind of, that way of looking at things being relativized in this, it basically makes you question everything you see. Um, and it introduces the possibility that things are otherwise than we see them. But if we've moved on from this old way of looking at things, of God being in nature, our spirit being in nature, God's being in nature, and of things being vital in themselves. Uh, the question is, if the way of our way of looking at things has been relativized, questioned so profoundly, so radically, what might come next? What what else can we look for? Yeah, um, yes. so he definitely was interested in the future as well as the past. Um, and you mentioned that he called the past consciousness original participation, um, just meaning kind of the, the, the participation in life that originates our consciousness now. Um, he often talked about um, the consciousness of the medieval world as reciprocal participation. Um, and this is the notion that the inner life of the individual can reflect the inner life of cosmos and the divine, um, sometimes expressed as the microcosm mirroring the macrocosm. Um, but he argues that we now in the modern world have gone through another um, process of alienation with the Reformation, with the scientific revolution, with the Enlightenment. Um, and this has an upside, um, which is that the sense of being an individual intensifies again. Um, so, for example, in the modern world, it's very natural for us to think of both men and women as individuals that um, are equal. Um, and we try and work out what that means in practice, of course, but it's a sort of working assumption. 
Um, and um, that's one of the upsides of this withdrawal of your vitality and your life coming from the outer world and being found even more so in the inner world and that we therefore give sovereignty to the individual. You regard people as kind of singularities that have a right to exist um, of their own. Um, so that's a great advantage um, of the modern consciousness. But what we struggle with is feeling that we belong, feeling that we have a place, knowing how we connect to others. Um, it's very easy to, to, to imagine there isn't a God, for example, something that comes about at the end of the 19th century. Um, uh, and to think that we're just dancing on a void, uh, nihilistic um, problems start to emerge. So what he argued was that um, our task now um, is to, from our own individuality, to breathe out again um, the, the spirited nature of all things and discover how in our reaching out to the inner life of other things, we begin to rediscover their inner life, reaching back into us. Um, but with the great advantage that we have self-awareness, that we're participating much more actively with real agency and freedom um, compared to uh, people in the ancient world who just sort of saw their life as, 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 as one of fate um, and as um, to do with um, you know, whether they were blessed by the gods or cursed by the gods. Um, we have much more participation um, in um, our sense of, of life with other things now. Um, and that he saw the task through particularly the Romantic tradition with these figures like Wordsworth and Coleridge. They were the kind of outriders of this, um, of this new sense of participating in life. But he argued that Romanticism now needs to come of age, as he put it, um, which means that um, we uh, can develop our own imaginative capacities, our own inspirational capacities, um, and uh, regain a sense of connection. Um, and again, for myself, um, I, I think this is very close to, the, to a lot of the work in psychotherapy, and that, again, people can come to psychotherapy feeling alienated, feeling trapped, feeling cut off, living in a very two-dimensional world. And, but by gradually paying more and more attention to their inner lives, feeling that it's safe to do so, um, the inner life of people around them and the world around them opens up as well. Um, that uh, there's something of a movement from the inside out, um, this uh, sense of the spirited nature of things being breathed out of us um, and uh, alerting us once more to the inner life of all things. Um, but with themselves um, fully participating in that activity, with still a sense of uh, individuality intact. Um, but the difference is their individuality, you might say, is in the service um, of um, the, the life of all things, the consciousness of all things, and not just trapped in its own uh, vitality, its own life. It quote, as imagination reaches the point of enhancing figuration itself, figuration being basically how we see things, hitherto unperceived parts of the whole field of the phenomenon necessarily become perceptible. He's talking about what, as it were, needs to happen. And as you're saying, does happen in psychotherapy. He talks about this as what he calls final participation. You actually don't use that phrase. And this is not a criticism. I can think of plenty of words of reasons why you might not. Can you just talk about why you don't use that phrase? Yeah, it was because um, I just I felt it was um, a phrase that perhaps would um, be as confusing as it was illuminating to people. Um, because I think what he means by the word final 
um, is not a kind of endpoint or resting point. Um, he just means it in the teleological sense that it's, as it were, the next step to which we're we're headed. Um, uh, and um, that that was one thing was a sort of a, a rather narrow notion. But also, um, I think it's because when I tried to work out as clearly as I could what Barfield himself imagined final participation to be, um, he's not that clear. Um, and I think that's because we're on the journey to final participation. Um, it's still unfolding. And what he's trying to do is keep us at the edge of that unfolding uh, rather than present us with a full vision of how it will have unfolded. Yeah. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just uh, stay with the edge. And uh, um, so not explicitly talking about final participation, uh, but instead have implicitly this sense of a direction of travel um, towards what Barfield did, in fact, call final participation. Yeah. So it was a sort of, um, it was a kind of linguistic decision I made um, that I hope would keep close to where we're at um, without unnecessarily confusing things. You've been talking about psychotherapy, at least as I understand it, one thing that goes on there is you don't you don't want to settle on an explanation of say various things that may have happened in your life too quickly. You might want to open out new possibilities about what something means. You used to be an Anglican priest and uh, you write in this book about Christianity. It's called a secret history of Christianity, but you also write about specifically about Jesus, write kind of interestingly about him. And you're trying to, in some ways, kind of, I sound not saying wholly originally, but to reconceive what Jesus means. And certainly you draw attention, for example, to the fact that people object in the modern world to the idea of, say, Jesus dying for our sins, Jesus saving us. Uh, so what might Jesus may mean in our times? But actually you point out that this is kind of inherent in the, the Bible, for example, itself. You point out that the synoptic gospels, that is Mark, Matthew and Luke, don't actually harp on about, say, Jesus' divinity. There's a kind of uncertainty there, which allows for participation for kind of the person reading to say, what does this mean? Can you talk about how you're trying to think of Christianity in this book? Yeah, I mean, I I decided when I was trying to um, think about a framework for how to write about Barfield's ideas, um, I wondered about writing a biography of him, perhaps, or an introduction to him or something like that, and then thought, no, no, maybe I should try and tell the story that, in his own way, he's trying to tell, particularly in saving the appearances that you that you suggest, um, and so told this story of 3,000 years of Christianity, so actually beginning um, a millennia or so before Christianity, where the consciousness starts to unfold um, that I think Jesus sort of crystallizes and brings together. Um, and so that in his own life and then also in people's reflections upon his life, that consciousness wakens for them. And I think this is the kind of the deepest uh, meaning of Christianity, that by reflecting upon Jesus, upon the incarnation, um, which is the bringing together of the outer and the inner, the immortal and the immortal, the human and the divine, um, uh, that by reflecting upon that, um, that can happen in oneself too. Um, that uh, as, as Meister Eichhardt and lots of mystics have commented, actually, the most important inc incarnation isn't actually the one that happened 2,000 years ago, 
um, but the, the, is the one that's unfolding in your soul now. Um, and um, that worked for about 1,500 years uh, very well for many people, it seems, uh, through the period of Christian dominance in the Western imagination. Um, it's, it's clearly struggling um, and uh, being questioned and so on now. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it's struggling and being questioned now is that we need to move to a phase where um, we look less to notions of, say, Jesus saving us, which now has too much of that resonance of something coming from the outside in. So it has the feel of limiting life for us now rather than expanding life for us. Um, and, and my own difficulties with the church, I realise now are a lot to do with how the church presents Christianity as something that's done for you or to you that you need to kind of say yes to and accept. It leaves you passive. Um, and I think that that uh, doesn't speak now to the modern sense of human agency where we want to become much more active in our development, in our salvation, you might say. Um, so one of the things which I try and draw out is actually the threads in the Christian tradition that might speak more to this new consciousness now. Um, and you do see it, particularly, I think, in the mystical tradition. Um, you see it in, say, Paul, um, right, from, right from quite early on, where Paul talks about becoming a co-worker with Christ or working out his own salvation. Um, or I notice that many of the gospel writers um, particularly after the resurrection, have Jesus saying to the disciples, you know, things like, do not touch me, um, or he appears and then disappears. Um, there's already the beginning of a sense that they've got to take something in themselves and make it for themselves to understand something so that they too can sit in that awareness of the divine and their individuality, which Jesus himself had. Um, so part of my aim in the book um, was to use Christianity to tell the story because it has been the dominant um, mode of consciousness, if you like, uh, in the West until relatively recently. Um, but also for myself, um, you know, because I have this relationship to Christianity to try and work out what that might mean now. Um, and I think it is um, to think about um, what Jesus, who Jesus is in a very different way. It's much more Jesus showed us a way that we can make our own rather than Jesus having done it for us, having saved us already. Um, that's that's much more where we're at now. And that you, I, I think it was quite beautiful the way you wrote about, say, after the supper at Emmaus, when they have that kind of blinding, blinding certainty that Jesus has been resurrected. Afterwards, they doubt what they've seen. I was struck by that. Yeah, I mean, it's something I've, I noticed originally, actually, when I was studying Plato, you know, I did this PhD on Plato, and um, I noticed that um, the gods always speak to Socrates um, which they do very often in Plato. The god Apollo speaks to, Plato, to Socrates all the time. Um, but he always speaks to Socrates in a negative way. He tells him not to do this, not to go there, um, not to um, say that. Um, and the point about that is that it is an intervention from the divine, but it's one that requires you to work out your response. And it's in working out that response that you become more of an individual. You become a more active participant with the divine. Um, so it becomes a kind of both-and situation rather than an either-or. Um, which I think was the older dispensation. And I think you can see how the gospel writers present Jesus in a very similar way. And similarly, too, in the mystical tradition, you know, mystics again often go through crises, through the dark night of the soul, as it's often put. These are very sort of negative experiences, but in that um, emptiness um, and with the wrestling and the struggle with that, um, on the other side of it comes, you might say, a resurrection, but one where you 
as the individual um, are much more actively engaged with divine life um, and not just as it were put upon by divine life. You write about Jesus, the way he talks about the apocalypse. We're living through a kind of soft, soft apocalyptic time. Uh, and one of its perhaps distinguishing features is that we're all kind of like laughing and joking around about it. But still, in people's psychic lives, it's something pretty serious. Um, how do you think we can learn from, from Owen Barfield and also from Jesus and other, say, I think it's Hebrew prophets who talk about about various apocalyptic visions and also Greek philosophers that we can wrestle with today? Yeah, I think that apocalyptic notions tend to appear when a civilization is going through a crisis. Um, it's going through a crisis of identity and meaning and purpose and direction. Um, and broadly speaking, I think that um, what the apocalypse is about is about individuals trying to understand how they might be vindicated in spite of the fact that civilization um, is crashing all around them. So the apocalypse that emerges in the intertestamental period, the period between the Hebrew Bible, stroke Old Testament, and the New Testament, um, so these are in the two or three centuries before Jesus' birth, um, they tended to see the individual being vindicated before the throne of righteousness, before God, um, and those who seemingly had a good life in this world um, meeting their comeuppance at the last. Um, that was tended to be how the apocalyptic vision was, it was, it was seen then. I think now um, we see it in more kind of this worldly moral terms um, that um, say with the climate crisis um, whose certainty seems to be growing all every day almost now, um, people uh, present the apocalypse as what's it going to be like for future generations, for our, um, our, our relatives um, in the future. You know, are we going to become good ancestors, as it's sometimes put? Um, and uh, it's there's something much more concrete. Um, it's an apocalypse that's actually going to happen in this world, which fits a scientific age. Um, and then also with our sense of Darwinian evolution, uh, we see our own vindication being judged by our, our, um, our, our children and our children's children. How will they judge us? Um, so it's a kind of secular version of the apocalypse. Um, but um, no doubt, I'm not denying climate change at all. I have no doubt that it's coming about. Um, but um, in terms of the, um, the imagination that we then try to use to understand it, um, I think that um, we have this much more kind of secular version of uh, the apocalypse as before. But like before, it still speaks as well as the actual crisis of our civilization feeling like it's lost its direction. It doesn't quite know what it's about anymore. How come it's destroying the world when we thought we were making the world? Um, it, it speaks to that existential crisis um, for us, our society. Um, and that's why we tend to revert to this, these apocalyptic notions. It's that only, only the apocalyptic notions can capture the sense of the crisis. Um, it's not just, as it were, something to fix and tinker with. And there's something much more profound going on. Even though, as I just said, we're all uh, we're all just kind of slightly laughing about the apocalypse these days. The as you say, it's a secular one, and the despair is uh, also very pr pronounced and real. And without trying to put a kind of happy clappy smile on it, nonetheless, Barfield's writing is well hopeful, which is one of the virtues, and it it offers a way of reconceiving the 
problem of consciousness and of reality that we're seeing. Reality, well, consciousness is part of reality. That's what Barfield is saying. But that just shows you how, how deep the kind of opposition, the modern opposition that I'm exemplifying just there now is. Sure. I mean, I, I've, got, I've got one or two thoughts on, on the more optimistic side. I mean, I think there's, there's sort of two ways that this happens. One is rather chaotic. Um, and I think of the new age often as uh, in this way, that um, it's a kind of great smorgasbord or a sort of supernova hmm. of uh, attempts to try and rediscover the inner life of other creatures um, of the world, of the gods, of God. Um, but it's, it's quite, um, it's hard to discern. It's often... Well, often even kind of laughable, um, but at other times uh, very feels authentic and like a genuine struggle as well. Um, I mean, the return to psychedelics at the moment that seems to be all around. I think similarly, you know, it's a it's an attempt to use something that our consciousness feels it understands, um, i.e., drugs, um, in order to open up to a kind of inner life of other things. But what often seems to come back with psychedelics is then very confusing. You know, there's there's the little green men of LSD or there's the kind of um, the blasting of the ego of DMT, whatever it might be. Um, it's hard to know quite how to integrate that back into life. Um, so that's one level, though. It's a sort of hope, though, because what it is saying is that there's more to life than just our own lives. Um, but I think a more um, discerned and perhaps uh, a more sustainable kind of rediscovery of the inner life of other things um, is, is found in nature writing. Um, you know, great interest while nature collapses in also uh, nature writers that can capture something of, uh, make sense of something of the life of places and of um, creatures of uh, environments around us. Um, and I'm just thinking of people like Robert McFarlane, who's very popular and successful, certainly in the UK now. And uh, writers like this feel like they're helping us to rediscover an older consciousness but in this active sense, it's, it, it's romantic writing in the, in, the, in the fullest sense of the world, but we're being asked to use our imaginations to re-engage with the life of nature around us. Um, and so I think that there are signs of hope um, and there are uh, areas of imagination that we, we should really cultivate. Um, and then, you know, the hope would be that economic systems follow on from that. I think you've got to get the spirit right and then the economic systems can follow. Because if you don't get the spirit right, if you don't get the perception right, it feels like it's just a sort of moral obligation or a burden. It feels like life is closing down. And then you are constantly in a war of trying to persuade people to give this up or not do that or, you know, to live in a different way. Um, but without giving them sense that it's because life is better if it's lived that way. There are kind of spiritual goods, you might say, that we can rediscover um, rather than just banking our whole lives on, betting our whole lives on, the accumulation of material goods, which, you know, tend to sort of let us down. Um, so that, that kind of struggle, I think, is unfolding most hopefully in, in areas like nature writing. Um, but you also see it in the new age and the kind of great um, panoply of, of experimentation that's going on in spiritually going on in that way as well. Yeah, only two weeks ago, I was, um, I experienced a kind of well, it was a called shamanic breath work for the first time um, breathing in very quickly breathing out very quickly for five minutes and well you learn so, and then basically you go off on a very mild for me anyway that time trip and you learn something about your body the way the body kind of uh, 
meets up with the mind. And so this kind of experimentation is kind of inchoate, um, slightly as you say, but it's there, it's going on. Then to make sense of it, that's a whole other story. Yeah, I think we're just at the stage where people need to be persuaded there's more to life than just the physical world. Um, so they, they do these slightly um, excessive uh, exercises uh, to, you know, to sort of just persuade themselves of that blunt fact. Um, and then I think what can happen is that you can start to know that in a more everyday sense and realign your life to that life, which is just beyond your own. Final question. People should read your book after they've done that. What Barfield book would you say they should read first? Yeah, um, I think that the collection of essays of his, Essays and Talks, which is published now um, as The Rediscovery of Meaning, um, is a good way of getting into him. They're, they're, they're shortish essays that stand alone. Um, Barfield's not always easy to read because he does have this sort of slightly technical language he uses, um, language words which, which mean um, things to him. So you have to sort of wrestle it out of him a bit. But the advantage of that is that in the wrestling, of course, your own consciousness forms. Um, so I suspect he was quite deliberate in that as well, um, that uh, he, he wanted to inform you, but also to form you in the process in his writing. Um, I think another good book, actually, of his um, is uh, History in English Words, um, which was actually his earlier book. I agree, by the way. That's the one I would have mentioned if, yeah. if somebody asked me. Go on, yeah. Yeah, so it was actually his first full-length book, and um, it just tracks the way that words have come into circulation in these British Isles um, and uh, and shows how consciousness changed as a result, or consciousness was changing, and therefore the words came into circulation. Um, so it's, it has quite a nice geeky feel if you're into words and their meanings. Um, it's a bit, little bit like reading Bill Bryson, like one of his books about language, a little bit, maybe a little step up from there, but not too much. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's got a forward, the edition I have has got a forward by W.H. Alden, the poet, that said this book should be in all schools, um, because it does have that sort of uh, combination of being entertaining and, and a pleasure to read, but also sort of educational at the same time, um, a bit like Bill Bryson can be. Um, so that'd be a good one. And And then, you know, do tackle saving the appearances, but in a way, don't worry if you don't understand one chapter, move on to the next, um, because it, it's almost a collection of essays, I think, that book. Um, and, you know, some of the chapters feel very abstract and philosophical. Others of them feel much more spiritual. Um, others of them, again, feel much more sort of religious. Um, so I think you can chop and change a bit through that book and gradually let it sink into you as well. What then is the, is the destiny of humankind? Well, uh, I thought we dealt with that. Destiny, if all goes well, and if they, if they use their free will in the way that one hopes they will, the destiny is um, final participation, which is, which is um, a highly developed garden of Eden, really, I suppose. But, uh, I don't know. But uh, I prefer not to go into all that. I think it's beyond me. But uh, all I can say is, please move in this direction. Thank <laughs> you.